the topic I'm going to speak on tonight, um, I hope it's an encouragement to all of you, uh, and I hope it's an exercise that will be useful in examining our, ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Um, man, woman, child, uh, if we profess to know Christ, what we do with our lives will prove that. Um, by what a man does, he, he proves he proves what he loves and what he hates. Just like we just read about Esau, um, the man he, he sold his birthright, proving that, that he despised his birthright. Let's let's pray, Father. I pray that you would bless this time that we have together, Father. I am not much. I know little. I am feeble. I, I do not know your word as I ought. I ought to know it better. I ought to be a preacher. I ought to be a man who can exposit a, a text very well, but can. But I, I can only preach a sermon reading. But here I am, standing in the place where you have placed me. You have put me here put this manuscript in my hand. Allow me to preach your word, Lord. This is a serious time, and I pray that every ear here will see this as a serious time. You have placed me here with a serious task. It is true that I am a man of unclean lips, a man whose history darker than maybe anyone here, but by your grace, your grace is greater than all my sin. You, you changed my heart and, and placed me here, Covenant Bible Church, in a covenant community of Christians, and, and it blessed me with the privilege of speaking your precious gems out of my undeserving lips. Father, please let your word go forth and go forth in power. Convict my own heart, encourage my own heart, and convict these people of their sin and encourage them with joy. By your spirit, in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Proverbs 16.5. And I'm going uh, to be looking at several different portions of scripture, so if you, you don't want to be flipping back and forth all the time, I, I, I certainly understand. But Proverbs 16.5 says that, the, that everyone who is proud in their heart is an abomination to the Lord. Being haughty, arrogant, self-exalting, and proud is a primary evidence that someone is not a Christian. A, a, a proud heart is a telling sign that someone is not born again. During this time, I'm going to address a particular topic regarding the evidences that an individual is proud and what are some evidences that a person is consumed with self and pride, thereby showing forth that they are not in Christ? And there are multiple things that can show that a man is proud and self-consumed. But during this time, I'm just going to be addressing one. And that is the inability to accept correction, admit faults and shortcomings. And then along with that, also the inability to actually be corrected and be removed from the wrong path that they are on and then be placed 
on the right path and actually walk in it. When an individual continually, over and over, on and on, shows that they are unable to be wrong and unwilling to be corrected, that is a very strong evidence that they are not born again. I'm going to look at this topic with three questions. The first question is, why do the unregenerate hate correction? The second question, question number two, why do the regenerate love correction? And the third question is, how does the body of Christ correct and receive correction from one another in comparison to how the world deals with one another? So our, our first question is, why do the unregenerate hate correction? Let's look at Jeremiah 36, verse 1. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah until today. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way, and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. And then later on, when Jehoiakim has the scroll read to him, we see him reject what God has to say. Verse 22, it was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. As Jehudai read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Jehoiakim receives a, a warning from the Lord, a warning that was for his own benefit, but instead of hearing the reprimand and humbly accepting the rebuke, he takes the scroll that the word of the Lord is written on and he cuts it up and he burns it. Like Jehoiakim, the unregenerate man hates correction. When he is rebuked, he becomes angry and burns with hatred. He hates correction. Unregenerate men hate to be correction. Corrected. Why? That's the question. I have two primary answers to that question. Answer number one, the unregenerate man hates correction because he has a high view of himself. Answer number two, the unregenerate man hates correction because he has a low view of God. Let's examine answer number one, and then we'll look at answer number two. The unregenerate man hates correction because he has a high view of himself. Let's look at the book of Proverbs and make note in your mind, as I go through these verses, what the Bible says about rejecting correction and what it says about those who do the rejecting. Proverbs 10, 17 says, Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. 
Proverbs 12.1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. But he who hates reproof is stupid. He who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 13.1. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Proverbs 13.18. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction. But whoever heeds reproof is honored. Proverbs 15.10. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Proverbs 15.12. A scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. So a, a man who does not like to be corrected is a fool. The fool who does not know God, he hates correction. The proud man is a fool. He is a fool that does not know God. The proud man is a fool that is blind to the truth of what he really is. And he hates to be corrected. The man that is proud in his heart is self-loving. He loves his self above all else. And he sees any correction of himself as an attack and becomes defensive and protects himself from anyone or anything that might show what he loves most of all, himself, to be wrong. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, the Apostle Paul lists self-love or being a lover of self as a sin. Those that are lovers of self are outside of the kingdom of God. The proud, correction-hating, unregenerate man's self-love is the opposite of the born-again man's position towards self. The born-again man has a hatred of self, a loathing of self. The proud and foolish, unregenerate man loves himself so much that he hates the thought of him not being exalted. So he hates being corrected. If he is corrected and he is proven to be wrong, he is devastated. Because for him, not to be perfect is an attack on the high image that he has of himself. He hates being told that he is wrong because it makes him look dumb, makes him look like he hasn't got it all together, and makes him look like he isn't some great success of a man or, or woman, child. The unregenerate fool that rejects instruction and hates to be corrected is self-consumed and self-loving and hates correction because he has been telling himself that he is highly important and full of worth and deserving of so much. Deep down, his conscience tells him that's not true, but he labors and he works hard to suppress those thoughts and works to convince himself that he is something when he is really nothing. And when he is corrected and rebuked, then his, his veil of lies that he himself has made up, this veil of lies made up of all the delusions of grandeur that, that he's been telling himself, it, it's pulled back. And the true, poor, naked, miserable sinner that he is becomes exposed. And that just cannot happen to this proud man. So he must do all he can to protect himself, make excuses for himself, and deny, 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 and refuse to let go of his own self-righteousness. Look at Proverbs 
The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. There is a way that seems right to a fool, and that's the way he goes. Because the one whom he loves most created that way, his own proud self. The man that hates correction is the man that has determined that his way is the right way. He is self-deceived. He believes himself to be right. He thinks his way is the righteous way. Because he is his God. He loves himself. He is his beloved. He is everything to himself. And he has determined in his own brain that he can take care of himself. He can guide himself. He can fight for himself. And he can teach himself. The foolish, proud, unregenerate man that despises instruction and reproof is like a man who thinks so highly of himself that even though he has one man come to him and tell him he needs to rise early in the morning instead of laying in the bed, he tells the man, no, I don't need to do that, and he just keeps laying in the bed. He has a second man come to him and tell him that, hey, it's harvest time. It's summertime, and your squash are laying out on the ground, and they're being ruined. You need to get out of bed and go pick up your squash. But no, he, he tells the second man, no, I don't need to do that. I have a better reason for not doing that. And he continues to lay in the bed. Then he has a third man come and, and tell him, hey, you're having trouble here. You're having trouble here. There's a good job for you. There's a job that you can take. I've already got it set up for you. It is a job for you. It is yours. And all you have to do is pick up the phone and, and call. But he tells the third man, no, that, that's too hard. That's too hard. I already know I'm not going to get the job. I already know they won't hire me. He already knows that and explains why he just has to go back to bed. He's wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. The unregenerate man loves his own way. He loves the wickedness that he partakes in. It's like a sport for him to do evil. It's like an entertaining game for him to sin. He loves it. His sinful way is his delight. He has no standard of conduct except for his own foolish notions. He determines that his way is the right path, and so he sticks to it. And he will go to war with anyone that tries to persuade him to forsake it. He creates his own law in his brain. He creates his own Bible with his mind, and he determines that he has every right to do so because he believes that he himself is his own master. His own God. That is why we see him serve only himself. He idolizes himself. He's zealous for himself. He glorifies himself. So then what we have is a proud, unregenerate fool who will not heed warnings or accept instruction or be admonished. This proud fool, this sinful man, this sacrilegious idolater who blasphemes God dishonors his parents, is a hateful murderer at heart. He's an adulterer. He's a creep. He's sexually immoral. He's a lazy cheat and a thief. He's an habitual liar. He's greedy. He's disloyal. He's envious. He's jealous. He's a radically depraved, twisted sinner. And he has determined in his own mind that he will not accept correction because he has made up his mind that his way is good. He has convinced himself that he's intelligent, He's wise. He's figured out the system. He's convinced himself that he has a corner on the market. 
And even if he ever starts to feel a little insecure or his conscience starts to bother him, he actively suppresses that by intentionally telling himself that he's fine. His value and worth are unmatched. He's smart. He's liked. He's attractive. He's got it all covered. He doesn't need help. He tells himself that he's rich. He says he's prospered. He says he needs nothing. Why does he hate to be corrected? It's because he believes himself to be high and exalted. He has a high view of himself. And to accept correction, that would require him to step off his throne as God and King, and he will not do that. It's asking far too much. Too much for him. It's too much for him to admit a mistake, confess his error, acknowledge the folly of his choices. Because that would prove that he wasn't perfect, that his way is not the right way, and he's actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He is deceived. He's foolishly disillusioned. His way of thinking is like the folly of a child. Fools, self-righteous, sinful. That's the way human beings come out of the womb. That's, that's why we, we all know... Most of the time, our children aren't thanking us for spankings. They get mad when you tell them to stop jumping where they could break their neck or, or get hurt. They get mad when you tell them to wash their bodies, stuff that's, that they must do for their own good. They get mad when you tell them to get out of the road. The unregenerate man is a fool that is wise in his own eyes. Why do the unregenerate hate correction? The unregenerate man hates correction because he has a high view of himself. Now let's examine the second answer to the question. Why do the unregenerate hate correction? Answer, the unregenerate man hates correction because he has a low view of God. Romans 1, starting in verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The proud, self-consumed man believes that he is needed by God. And he, that he adds something to God and God is waiting on him. And that God is dependent upon him. He has a low view of God. He has a low view of God's holiness. He has a low view of God's righteous standard. He has a low view of God's perfection. He has a low view of God's judgment. The proud, self-loving man who hates correction often believes that, that God pines over him just like he pines over himself. He believes that he is just like God, and, and God is just like him, and God is just the big man upstairs who is winking at his sin. The proud, self-loving man sees God as though he has something to add to God. And because the proud, self-loving man sees his own self-exaltation as the very highest of all virtues, he believes that if God is good, then God must be just as concerned as he is with his own self-esteem, self-worth, and exaltation. 
He believes that he is the center of God's universe. And God is centered around him. He is a delusioned fool. The reality is that God is dependent upon no one or no thing. God doesn't need us at all. God owes man nothing. Job 41.11, God answers Job, Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Romans 11.35, Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God has no lack or want. He needs nothing. Psalm 50, verse 10. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. God does not need you or me. God does not need the proud, arrogant, self-loving, unregenerate man. God has no need or want. He is perfect in every way, lacking nothing. God is the creator of all things. He is the source of all things, and he holds all things together. And we are breathing his air. We are living in his universe because he has allowed us to do so. He owes us nothing. He is the potter and we are but clay. We are like a breath and our days are like a a passing shadow. What is our life? We are a mist that peers for a little while and then vanishes. Men who think they are something when they are nothing are senseless. They are completely irrational. They are nothing but a few handbreaths. They know nothing. They are frail and fragile. They age and die. They cannot make food grow. They cannot make rain fall from the sky. They cannot make the clouds bring out the sun or hide the sun. It's God who holds every living thing in his hand. The breath of all mankind is in his hand. There's not one man that can add even one inch to his own height or or change one hair of his head from black to white. But yet... The proud, self-loving fool says in his heart, there is no God. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. And his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in the ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and by his might, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. The proud, self-loving, unregenerate man that hates correction has no fear of God. No fear of God at all, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The unregenerate man hates correction, hates to be corrected because he has a low view of God. He believes that God's number one desire is for him to be happy, smiling, secure, confident, and healthy. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Uh, I want to focus on verse 5, and I want, us, I want to magnify the language, examine this, the language that Isaiah uses in verse 5. Isaiah here he sees the glory of God, and in verse 5 he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts. He makes four statements. Then he tells us why he says them. He says, woe is me. Then he says, I am lost. Then I am a man of unclean lips. He says, I, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why does he say these things? He, he tells us, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Yeah. The unregenerate man hates correction because he has a low view of God. Isaiah sees the glory of God and says, Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of, of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah gives no buts or excuses for his shortcomings. He gives no attempt to justify himself. He doesn't give an attempt to explain himself. Notice that Isaiah gives no attempt to protect his self-esteem. He makes no effort to defend some self-image or guard himself from being exposed. He gives no, no attempt to save himself or preserve himself. Isaiah sees the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up. And if there was any delusion in Isaiah that he was something, if Isaiah ever had any high delusion about himself, we sure don't see them now. When Isaiah has this vision of the glory of our God and Savior, Christ Jesus, sitting on his throne, Immediately, he is overcome with the thought of his wretched depravity and his unworthiness, and he cries out, Woe is me! I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. With just one glimpse of the glory of God, Isaiah has not a doubt that all his righteousness is as filthy rags. Isaiah sees God high and lifted up. His eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, who is perfect and excellent in every way, of infinite value, of infinite worth. And Isaiah has no confusion at all that he is low and but a worm, a man of unclean lips, totally undone and lost. When Isaiah sees who God is, we don't see him in love with himself. We don't see Isaiah concerned with protecting some self-interest. Instead, what we see is that the prophet is enamored with the glory of God. And in light of what Isaiah sees, he loathes his own uncleanliness. He loathes his sinfulness. And again, any delusion of grandeur about his own self is gone. The unregenerate man hates correction because he has a low view of God. The reason why men continue on in pride and conceit and self-centeredness is because they don't know the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not concerned about sinners' self-esteem or how positive they feel about their own radically depraved selves. But 
That idea contradicts the way most people think. Contradicts the vast majority of the way modern day Americans think about God. Uh, and and I, have these, I have these quotes just because um, I want to show, I have a couple quotes from the false teacher Joel Osteen, just because I want to show what the other side of this looks like. Uh, and these quotes, they line up perfectly what is being preached in the majority of schools, locker rooms, boardrooms, on every news channel, media, whether they be liberal or conservative. And just listen to them. And as we go through, just in your own heart and mind, your own brain, compare them to the prophet Isaiah's words in chapter 6, verse 5. Joel Osteen writes in his book, Your Best Life Now, You may think there's a lot wrong with you, but there's also a lot right with you. Then he writes, It's vital that you accept yourself and learn to be happy with who God made you to be. If you want to truly enjoy your life, you must be at peace with yourself. Now, just compare that to Isaiah's words. Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And another quote from Joel Osteen in his book titled, I Declare. Uh, one of his declarations is 31 promises to speak over your life. One of his declarations it goes this way. I, I declare I am extraordinary. I am not average. I have been custom made. I am one of a kind. Of all the things God created that, that he is most proud of is me. I am his masterpiece, his most prized possession. I will keep my head held high knowing I'm a child of the most high God made in his very image. This is my declaration. Now again, just compare that to Isaiah's words. Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Another quote from Joel Osteen from his book, Become a Better You. He writes, At the start of each new day, remind yourself, I am talented, I am creative, I am greatly favored by God, I am equipped, I am well able, I will see my dreams come to pass. Now again, let's just remember Isaiah's words and compare them in your mind. Woe is me, I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why does, let's remember, why does Isaiah say these things? Because he sees, he sees the glory of God. Here, here's another quote from one of Joel Osteen's sermons. He says, instead of going around down on yourself, feeling unattractive, too tall, too short, not enough of this, too much of that, no, dare to get up in the morning and say, I am a masterpiece. Again, in your own mind, just take that and compare it to Isaiah's words. Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. One more quote from Joel Osteen. He, he says this in another one of his sermons. My question today is what kind of I am's are coming out of your mouth? I am victorious. I am blessed. I am talented. I am anointed. Some of you if you just change the I am, you would go to a new level. I am strong. I am confident. I am equipped. I am well able. Make sure you have the right I am's coming out of your mouth. I wonder what he would think about Isaiah's I am's. Maybe he hasn't read them. We need to realize that's not just positive and encouraging theology light. It's actually the polar opposite of the biblical view of man and the biblical view of God. It's not just different, 
but it's really working against the truth of the Bible. It's completely opposite of what Isaiah's words were when he saw the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah didn't say, I'm great, I can, I'm able, I'm God's most perfect possession. He said, God is, he didn't say, God is proud of me and I'm strong and I can, I can do all these things. Instead, one more time, Isaiah cried out, Woe is me, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What Joel Osteen and those that sit under him, and whether it be Oprah or Dr. Phil or Norman Vincent Peale, Vince Lombardi, what they are going after is completely opposite of the Bible. And actually, it's a, it's a demonic message that is com- completely, directly opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. All their so-called success that they are going after and trying to win, it's all just wood, hay, and stubble. And their self-loving, self-promoting understanding comes from their own depraved hearts and having a low view of God. But their, their religion of positive thinking is popular. It is the American religion. And people love it. Why? Because the concept of believing in yourself and feeling good about yourself works quite well for people. It's, it's pragmatic. It makes perfect sense. If... All a man is ever going to do is heap up treasures for themselves, eat and drink and be merry, and then after 70 years just die and rot in the ground. Their religion makes sense if there is no God. And that's why they go after it. Because God is in none of their thoughts. They have no fear of God. They are proud, pompous, foolish lovers of themselves who are building their own kingdoms to have their best life now. And they give no thought to the God that made them. They believe that all that matters is them, their money, their success, their happiness. And they do not believe that that God will judge the world. They believe that that God will wink at their sin because they're so important. They do not believe that, that God is as righteous as he says he is in his word because that would impede on their glorious personal freedom and happiness. They refuse to acknowledge that God is angry at the wicked every day because that would ruin their fun and laughs. So if anyone ever does come and warn them of their sin or point out their faults, they are not bothered that they may have committed a sin against God. No, instead, they are up in arms, ready to go to war with great zeal and passion for themselves. Great zeal and passion because you're ruining their beloved self's good time. They despise anything that would rain on their parade and spoil their best life now, spoil their self-esteems or contradict all the things, whatever they may be, that they have determined everyone and God owes them for being so important. The unregenerate man hates correction because he has a low view of God. And the sad truth is that one day very soon, their delusional fantasy will come to an end. And the self-lovers who are building kingdoms for themselves, building their best lives now, will see the end of their beating hearts one day. And in the next moment, they will see the gaping mouth of hell swallow them up. Because they were not made for 70 years, or 80 years, or 90 years, but for eternity. Mm-hmm. Revelation 21.8, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, let's move on to the second question. Question number two. 
Why do the regenerate love correction? The answer is this. The regenerate man loves correction because he knows he needs it. God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The born-again man was once in the same darkness of the proud and arrogant, unregenerate man that I just spoke of. But now he's no longer in darkness, but is in the light of the Lord. The born-again man does not have the same delusion about himself, because like Isaiah, he has seen the glory of God. The born-again man was just like the unregenerate man in the past, blind, unable to see, and in darkness. But God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in the heart of the born-again man to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The born-again man sees the truth about who he is, that he is guilty and undone and has no hope for his soul outside of Christ Jesus. The born-again man knows that all his righteous deeds are as filthy rags, and he has nothing to stand on, no merit, no goodness, no works to please God. The born-again man is looking to Christ Jesus alone, and his righteousness, and his substitutionary atoning sacrifice. The born-again man has no reason to defend self because he knows That the sins, the vile sins that that his own self committed are the very sins for which his beloved Lord Jesus died. The born-again man does not live his life running from God as a free rogue rebel. But he lives his life as a blood-bought slave. A man bought with the blood of God's own son. And he loves his perfect master and he keeps his commandments. The born-again man, his life is not revolved around his own self but rather it's revolved around Christ Jesus, who loved him and gave himself up for him. All those who have been born again have died to self. Whether someone is a young babe in Christ's school or they are mature in Christ's school, if they are Christ, they have died to self. Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 5.24, talking about not gratifying the lust of the flesh, but being led by the Spirit of God. Paul writes, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In the Gospels, Christ Jesus says this, Matthew 10, 38, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Mark 8, 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. John 12, 24 and 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Luke 9, 23, 
And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The call of Christ is to deny self and follow him. The, the regenerate man loves correction because he knows he needs it. He knows that he is a sinner. The Spirit of God has revealed unto him that, that he is not a high and exalted success of a man, but he is a sinner. He has broken the law of God. He has ignored and dishonored the good, righteous God, who is the only reason he even exists. The born-again man sees that about himself. He sees that about his sin. He sees the dark, dreadful weight of his past and knows that he has been so wrong, is so wrong, has done wrong, has thought wrong, and still has a tendency to think wrong and understands that he desperately, desperately needs godly correction. Correction that is in accord with the Word of God. Because the born-again man is done away with his way. He is finished with the way that, that he thought was right before. He's done with his way. And the born-again man wants to go God's way. He wants to be taught by God. He doesn't want to just figure it out on his own. Because he knows that his way is always going to be tainted with, with falsehood, dripping with sin. The born-again man cries out the, the words we see all throughout Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 5. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Unlike the proud, pompous, self-loving, unregenerate man who clings to some false, exalted view of himself and has a low, weak view of God, the man who has been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit sees the weight of his sin and is desperate for Almighty God who is his only hope. And he cries out to God, Psalm 119, verse 25, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways from me and graciously teach me your law. The born-again man is a new creature. He has no love for the old self. He has no desire, no want. No, no longing whatsoever to see self gain anything. He is dead and his life is hidden with Christ in God. The born again man loves God's way, loves God's path. He desires to walk in God's righteous way. He cries out to God, Psalm 119, verse 33, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Desperate for God. Not relying upon himself, but desperate for God. That's the born-again man. Desperate to be taught by God. The regenerate man knows he needs correction because he knows he is a sinner. The born-again man knows he deserves to be in hell 
but for a reason outside of anything he can comprehend. God, for his own glory, and out of his own love, mercy, and grace, simply by his own free sovereign choice, became a man, the man Christ Jesus, and kept the law of God in perfect obedience in the sinner's place, and died in his place, taking the punishment that he deserves for all his sin. The regenerate man loves correction because he is no longer living for his own sinful way and his own sins for which Christ Jesus died. But, but now he follows Christ. Let's look at Matthew Levi as an example. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Here Christ sees this tax collector, a sinner named Levi, or Matthew Levi, sitting at the tax booth, the place where he did his tax collecting, the place where he did his sinning. Christ sees this sinner sitting in his sin, in the place where he did his sinning, and Christ Jesus said to him, follow me, and spoke effectually to his heart. Then Levi left everything and rose and followed Christ. And that's what happens when a man is born again. Amen. And I, I just want to point out that Levi, Levi did leave everything. He left his ambitions. He left his career goals as a tax collector. He left his greed. He left, he left the habits. He left all these things. He left his self-love. He left all that he had been, all that he had been doing. And he came up out of his tax booth. He came out of his sin. He made no attempt to defend his tax collecting. We don't read anywhere that Matthew Levi, the the writer of the book of Matthew in our Bibles, ever went back to tax collecting. He didn't make excuses to the Lord Jesus for why he was out there in the tax booth or why he fell into that particular career or how his hardships in life forced him into that situation, into tax collecting. He doesn't do any of that. Because when Christ Jesus said, follow me, the words went right to his heart, and the Holy Spirit convicted him of his sin, and the love of Christ flooded his soul, and he left everything and followed his beloved master. And that's what happened, happens when a man is born again. And if that hasn't happened to you, anyone who that hasn't happened to, hasn't had an experience like that, is not Christ, and they're still on their path to hell. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. So the regenerate man hates sin, wants nothing to do with it, and wants to have nothing to do with his own way, but wants to be corrected and taught and admonished by God, including whatever means God sends to do the correcting. And the regenerate man doesn't just know he needs correction, but he loves it. He loves the hand of his loving father. His shepherd who loves him as a son and every so often has to take his staff and and whack him back on the path, on the the path of righteousness. The, The regenerate man is thankful for godly correction. He does not despise the Lord's discipline. Instead, he cries out, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, whom you teach out of your law. Now, just in closing, our last question. How does the body of Christ correct and receive correction from one another in comparison to how the world deals with one another? Let's look at Proverbs again. Proverbs 29.5. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. 
Proverbs 7, 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 26, 28. A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Within the, the body of Christ as an assembly, as a collective group of born-again men who gather together locally, making up a local church, regenerate men are called to love one another and encourage one another, take care of one another, be hospitable toward one another, hold each other accountable, teach and, and disciple one another. The world is not like the body of Christ. When unregenerate men and women come in through the doors of a physical church building, they are still not like the bride of Christ. The world flatters one another. Unregenerate men wouldn't dare getting into each other's business or let anyone in theirs. Out in the world, people just keep their opinions to themselves or they gossip about others when they aren't around. They lie to one another. When they want to sharpen each other, it's, in the end, it's, it's just a way to puff each other up. And when they see someone going astray, they just watch and say nothing. But the bride of Christ is not that way. Saints that make up the gathered local church love one another enough not to flatter one another, not to see someone going astray and not address them. They sharpen one another. They correct one another and point each other to Christ. Some more scriptures, Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. James 5, 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Luke 17, 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Within the gathered biblical local church, as individuals grow and are being sanctified, there is much correcting going on. Colossians 3.16, Paul tells the Christians in the church at Colossae to admonish one another, to be able to take instruction from one another. As I read in James, brethren, when we see someone wandering, we should go and try and attempt to bring them back, bring back the one that is wandering. Matthew 18, the church discipline passage, Christ says specifically that believers within the church are to go to a brother that sins against him and tells him his and tell him his fault. Just pause on that. Sometimes we like to zoom past that, but that is a command, meaning not to do not to do that. It's it's a sin. It's it's to not keep the command. Matthew eighteen. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Period. Right there. That's a command. 
Meaning if your brother sins against you and you don't tell him his fault, you're being disobedient. And, and it also says to go and when he repents, forgive him and keep forgiving. Forgive, forgive, forgive. And if he doesn't accept, it, it says also if, uh, to do it between you and him alone. And if he doesn't accept your correction, and then he, he doesn't accept the correction of two or three witnesses, and then he refuses to accept the correction of the church, he's to be treated as though he, he's not a Christian at all. And, and that's not to, to be vindictive or, or to take something away from the man, but rather it's just recognizing what, what it appears the man has always been. When those that make up a local church don't correct others and don't go to others when they see they are sinning, it's not, it's not being loving. What it is doing is allowing someone who very well may be on their way to hell, maybe a self-deceived, unregenerate, lost church member to just continue on in their sin, unchecked, in danger of falling more and more into apostasy and eventually being cast away into hell. Luke 17.3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. That must be the case with us, Covenant Bible Church, as we live together maybe for another 80 years, plus instructing our children, our, our grandchildren, our, our great-grandchildren. We must be a people that are rebuking and correcting one another frequently and often, and repenting and forgiving one another frequently and often. It, it is true that, that some correction has more weight than others. Some rebuke has more authority. And, and rebuking one another and receiving rebuke from one another is not always going to look the same. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, we must love one another. And in loving one another, our desire should be that all of us are growing more and more like Christ together every week, every day. If we are Christ, we will keep his command that we, that we see in Luke 17, 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And then if we are Christ, we will keep his command to forgive each other. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we must always be instructing and admonishing one another, always repenting and encouraging one another and giving thanks when we see the evidence of God humbling us, enabling us to be admonished, and then praising God when we see the evidence of the repentance. And then we keep forgiving, rebuking, repenting, forgiving, and then repeating over and over and over. The Lord says, John 13, 35, By this people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. When the world rebukes one another, they hate it. They have contention. They burn bridges. Someone, someone says one real thing to someone else that they can't stand. It's just too, too real. It's too honest. Something that they didn't like, and they write each other off. They, they pack up the car and go to another church. That, that's how the world deals with one another. They're either fake and shallow, or they can't, stink, they can't stand being together, and they cut each other off. But we are Christ's church. Let's never leave someone behind or leave someone to go after sin, and, and let's never harden our necks toward one another. Let's have humility in our relationships with one another. Let's be a people able to lovingly say the hard things to one another, and then forgive one another and be actively and intentionally encouraging one another in the Lord. And then when the world sees us, they will, they will surely say that we are a peculiar people and know that we are Christ's disciples. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God 
and knows God. And just in close, I remind you to consider, consider Nathan and consider David. Two men. Nathan came to him and said, had to say, you are the man. And David, instead of his, he could have burned with hatred. His, his anger could have been kindled toward Nathan. But instead, because the Spirit of God humbles him, he confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. Amen. Let's pray.